Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of the horrendous earthquakes that have struck Turkey and Syria. We're back on February 6th and discuss the consequences for the region's fragile politics. With tens of thousands of dead and international aid flooding in, what hopes are there for the many thousands of victims who are caught up between groups and governments at war with each other for many years? We're also going to be talking about the impact within Turkey as fears grow that President Erdogan may postpone the election amid outcries over corruption and the devastating loss of life and the Turkish state's response. Joining me down the line from Beirut is Lena Sinjab. She's a Syrian filmmaker and a BBC journalist covering the Middle East. Welcome to the show, Lena. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Joining us from the US is Charles Lister, a senior fellow and director of the Syria program at the Middle East Institute. Welcome, Charles. Hi, thanks for having me. So to the home here in London, we have Zia Miral, a senior associate fellow on Turkey at the Royal United Services Institute, which we often call RUSI. Welcome to the show, Zia. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with these really grim events. Now, some days ago, February 6th, there was a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck the region, Turkey, southern Turkey and northern Syria, and repeated aftershocks. Lena, perhaps you can start for us And you're in Beirut. What is happening at the moment about the response to this? Well, we've all been following the news, devastating news about what's happened in Turkey and Syria. It's, you know, it's a, a, a huge magnitude of, of an earthquake that left you know, at least 40,000 dead between Syria and Turkey. And, you know, as much as there is international uh, support and international response uh, jumping into help, uh, especially in Turkey, we saw very little of that help coming into northern Syria, the area controlled by the opposition. There are areas inside Syria as well that were affected, but on the government-controlled side. And countries who are friendly to the Assad regime, whether from the region or international ones like you know, from Russia, China, Iraq, Iran, Nigeria, the Emirates, all flooded into government-controlled area, while Idlib and some parts of Aleppo that are under the opposition control is left for you know the ordinaries there for the white helmet who have done incredible work in trying their uh, rescue efforts, uh, but little support has come in to in the rescue stage. Now we've seen UN convoys of aid, humanitarian aid, flooding into Syria from new uh, border crossings that uh, have opened to ease the humanitarian aid. They've just arrived very late at a stage, and we still are expecting a lot of need there. This is an area that has lived under bombing for 10 years. This is an area that already hosts for IDPs and almost 4 million people living there who have already been in need for humanitarian. And now after the earthquake where it is roughly estimated that at least 4,000 people died in northern Syria and the, the ones who are left in, in, in the air because of their homes destroyed will need long-term support and humanitarian assistance. So very little support is, is being given to this part of Syria. But at least, you know, if, if something would happen is that this earthquake, this, you know, terrible situation brought Syria back to the international attention, brought Syria back to, to the pressure group so that, you know, they give more support for an, an area that is already in need. 
And as we said, people needing really everything from immediate shelter, immediate food and medical treatment to income, to livelihoods. And this is an area that needed many of those things already. Charles, your focus is Syria. Can you just take us into a bit what Lena was describing, of this very complex picture around the borders and what happens to aid in it? You have the Turkish border between Turkey and Syria, but also the, the, the informal border between government and opposition-controlled areas within Syria. Yeah, so to sort of build on what Lena was saying here, yes, we're talking about an, act, an active conflict zone. I think it's become popular for many to, to assume that the Syrian crisis and the multiple conflicts in Syria have been over for some time, but that's far from the truth. So yes, this is a, an active conflict zone with lines drawn on the map, you know, contradictory or competing lines of control. But the Turkish border and the status of the Turkish border is, is really key here. If we're talking about the access uh, of aid into the hardest hit region, which is this opposition controlled Northwest. But 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 speaking of the conflict, you know, the conflict itself had already had a profound impact on the infrastructure and the stability and the low level of sort of service provision in the region. 65% of the opposition controlled Northwest, 65% of the basic infrastructure was already destroyed or heavily damaged before the earthquake. So it was a sitting target or, you know, the, the, as vulnerable as you can get when you're then, when you then introduce into, into the mix a catastrophic natural disaster. And then to make matters worse, over the past two to three years, the Russian government has utilized its seat on the Security Council to methodically veto and curtail the ability of the United Nations and the international community to provide aid into this northwestern region. And that's where we've had this whole big sort of discussion, debate and furore over access points. And uh, the one access point through which the United Nations is permitted to provide aid called Babel Hawa was, was technically open. But I gather that the facilities the UN uses to provide aid across Babel Hawa on a routine basis had been damaged by the earthquake. Many of the UN staff had been affected by the earthquake. And so we saw a very slow response but honestly speaking, or frankly speaking, the, the, the biggest factor at play here in terms of the UN's delayed response was a decision within the United Nations to prioritize negotiations with Damascus, the Syrian regime, over reopening alternative border crossings to expand the ability to respond to the crisis. And, and in that scenario, the regime did what it's done for the past 12 years, which was to delay and to delay beyond what people call the kind of golden window in which it's still possible to save people's lives, it, it waited long enough that there is nobody alive under the rubble anymore. And there are still believed to be hundreds, if not thousands, still under the rubble in, in northwestern Syria. Uh, and it made the strategic decision to wait and then open up and hope that the international community saw that as a, as a positive, constructive step and perhaps a sign that the regime can be a, a, a responsible and pragmatic actor. We shouldn't fall for that, but we can discuss that, I'm sure. Do you think that was a mistake of tactics by the UN? Unquestionably, I think it's I think it's unforgivable. I understand that the United Nations was established with a, a, a structural sort of bias towards sovereign governments, and I understand that as evil as the regime may be, it still has that status. But the regime doesn't control these border crossings; they have no troops in the area. And and as soon as this decision was announced at the United Nations a few days ago, the regime's ambassador at the UN gave a, a press conference. And honestly, it was one of the most 
sort of spine tingling, sh- sh- you know, things I've watched in a long while, putting aside all the brutal footage from, from the conflict in Syria. He, first of all, was jubilant that the regime was being given all this credit, all this credibility. They were front and center of the international news, and they were being presented as having made this honorable decision to open up the border crossings. But a journalist asked in follow-up and said, well, why is it taken a week? And he laughed. And then he said, well, we don't control these border crossings. Why are you asking me? And then laughed again. That, for me, was this kind of spine-tingling you know, illustration of just how cruel and evil this regime is. They didn't need to be asked to open up these border crossings. There is no legal reason why the UN needs a Security Council vote to provide humanitarian aid. There is a basis in international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions to do it without. But the UN decided to prioritize talking with the regime over and above providing aid to those who needed it. Sia, do you accept that picture, that the UN got this wrong and that Syria has been using this to its advantage? Well, I think I mean, it's very difficult to disagree because that has been a common failure all throughout this crisis, really. Yes, there is definitely a mandate and need to engage with the Assad regime. Eventually, we would have to work with them and accept the realities on the ground. But there's been other moments where actually aid and relief and support and even humanitarian interventions could have gone a long way in stopping calamities in Syria, and we didn't. And I think so, (laughs) I'm not surprised that they're at the moment trying to use any international sympathy towards granting of funds as a way of asserting their diplomatic presence, seizing money, and being the the channel through which some of this aid and relief will be distributed. Hmm. Um, So it fits their agenda rather well. Gee, I'm going to come back to you in a second on Turkey. But Lina, Charles has put this point very, very forcefully, and I think you were nodding as he was talking, but I I just wanted to get whether that was your picture as well. Uh, well, certainly, certainly it is the case. And unfortunately, you know, the, the UN has been doing this since day one in Syria. You know, that the, the regime's game is to play with time to show that they are in control and they decide on aid coming in, on, you know, evacuation, on besiegement. And the UN has always waited for regime's approval, although in many cases that mandate would have forced them to act to save lives, and they didn't. They waited for regime's approval, and that's what they did. Because the regime also, while trying to portray no to discrimination against anyone who was affected by the by the earthquake, but actually they were trying to make use of this or this occasion to lift sanctions. All their focus, all the regime, regime's people and regime's the advocates were focusing on the sanctions although it wasn't affecting any humanitarian aid coming to their area. But it's a really important point about the context, which is obviously of a, of a long period of, of, of sanctions. Um, Zia, take us to Turkey then, and how the Turkish government has been handling the relief on its side of the border, and how it's been handling you know, aid across the border, this, this, this question of how to deal with the border. Yeah, this is the the, the largest calamity to Turkey for perhaps 100 years. So I think an element of the chaos that we have seen in response immediately to the earthquake is understandable in the sense that you have 10 cities, you know, more than 10,000 or so buildings that have been either yeah. destroyed or about to crumble. You have, you have towns absolutely flattened uh, and, exactly. and, and, and tens of thousands of people are dead and, exactly. and and many, many more instantly displaced and uh, uh, absolutely horrendous scenes. 
Yeah, 35,000 people confirmed that at the moment, which sadly, I think that would perhaps reach to 50,000, 60,000 very soon. We have 13 million citizens affected directly and millions of them won't be able to go back to their houses and they need to relocate within Turkey and some will definitely leave the country. So I think in the immediate relief, uh, immediate kind of search and rescue response, we have seen some 70 countries or so sending their missions and personnel and that was welcome. I think both by the government and by the society. And you also seen a huge momentum within the country itself where people have come together, either literally got into their cars and rushed rushed to the conflict, the earthquake zone, brought aid and raised funds and Turkish charities have done a great job as well too. But in the middle of all of that, I think the government has really failed to convince Turkish citizens and quite international observers too, that actually it's done what it could have done. I think there was a lot of chaos initially and eventually the politics of it will start and it's already starting because the elections were was just around the corner and Erdogan government has every incentive to contain the narrative, contain possible political fallouts and emerge as the government of delivery, that they will be the ones to reconstruct, they will be the ones to help people and aid people. And that's now the phase we are entering. There's a lot of rage, there's a lot of bitterness and we will see how they will unfold. We're going to come on to the Turkish elections in, a, in our second part, but I just want to say on this, this, this question of the, the border and, and Turkey and how it's handling you know, the fact that aid needs to reach across those stricken communities. Charles, your thoughts? Well, Turkey's, as, as Zia says, Turkey's facing its own catastrophic disaster, so it's, it's not surprising that Turkish efforts are focused on, on, on Turkish territory. Of course, it's not. It, it, it is not and it wasn't and it won't be a, a significant strain on, on Turkish resources to just have the crossings into northern Syria open. I don't think there was any resistance to doing that in the first place. I think there was just sheer distraction by, the, by, by response to the domestic situation. Of course, Turkey has long maintained its own unilateral aid program and stabilization program in northern Syria. And I think there are, are, are justifiable questions to ask as to whether or not that's likely to continue, at least in the interim, given the enormous strains on the Turkish side of the border. And the effect of that will hit most hard in the rural northern Aleppo region, which is also controlled by the opposition and essentially guaranteed by, by the Turkish state. You know, Turkish state electricity and water is, is supplied free of charge into that area. And I suspect all of that will be strained. And, and, in, and as a natural extension to this, we have to also bear in mind that there are nearly 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey, most of them in the south, in the earthquake-struck region. And we've heard some quite concerning reports over the last couple of days that the pre-existing anti-refugee sentiment that had become one of the most significant issues in the upcoming Turkish elections has been further exacerbated by this earthquake. There have been stories from the ground in Turkey of Syrian refugees stuck under the rubble, pretending to be Turkish citizens because they didn't think they'd be rescued if the rescuers knew that they were Syrian. But now we're hearing political rhetoric about how this earthquake is further evidence that Syrian refugees essentially have to be expelled now to northern Syria because the Turkish state just simply can't cope with continuing to provide for them. And I think that's an enormous source of concern for Europe. In 2022, the illegal migration of Syrians to Europe rocketed by over 100%. That was before the earthquake, 
just a small sign of what 2023 is going to look like. This earthquake has now made that even more of a guarantee. We are going to see a refugee surge towards Europe, mostly consisting of Syrians, many of whom are in Turkey. We know for a fact that the, that the Turkish government has what it calls opened the gates as a source of pressure on the Europeans before. I think it will have every reason to do so, given the strains that the Turkish state is facing now. So this is like a whole nother massive major knock-on effect with profound geopolitical consequences that I think we're likely to see play out once the weather warms up this year. You put it extremely clearly, and while you can certainly hear those kind of expectations in the circles of people dealing very directly with this, I don't think it's something you're hearing at the moment in European governments, but ought to be. Nina, just before we leave Syria, what are you hearing on the ground about movements of refugees? Uh, well, just to reflect on what Charles was was saying, also many of the dead in southern Turkey are also Syrians. I mean, there are reports of at least 100 bodies moved from Turkey to Syria to be buried. I mean, my, my Syria feed on Facebook is filled with whole families dead in, in, in Turkey. And yes, we've, seen, we've heard a lot of these reports of hate speech coming and intensifying now against Syria, especially from some of the opposition figures who are anti-refugees in, in the first place. So it's, it's going to be a critical time in the coming you know weeks and months to unfold, especially uh, before the elections. I mean, we've heard Erdogan trying to send messages of meeting with Damascus and uh, trying to open bridges with Assad because he wanted to do the thing that the opposition are trying to flag before his election. So after this earthquake and after this, you know, catastrophe also for Turkey, they are at a high stake. They are in, in, in higher risk these days. And it's, it's, it's difficult to, to speculate what's going to happen to them at the moment. Everyone is now is still in the shock of loss, you know, all fa whole families uh, died. So we still will have to wait for the weeks and, uh, and months to come to see what kind of faults will come for uh, for their movements, basically. Okay, th thanks very much. Well, we'll just for the moment leave Syria because Turkey and the elections have been tugging at this whole conversation. And Zia, I wondered if you could take us into it. It's, it's quite, there were quite a lot of challenges facing Erdogan before this for the last couple of years, the living conditions in the country experienced a kind of inflation. The costs of basic commodities have been skyrocketing, including for his own voters and people who've been quite kind of faithful to get behind AKP and Erdogan. They've been asking really tough questions. Some of that has been done, has been trying to ease it by Abrashma with so many countries, including with Syria, including Armenia, including even easing some of the polemics with Europe and with United States as a way of attracting more investment, some of these diplomatic tensions and vulnerabilities. Before the earthquake, it was still very difficult to see which way the elections would go. He still clearly has a popularity. His party and himself attracts a lot more votes than his own party. But the coalition around him could definitely come close to 50%. But it was the unknown about this kind of middle range voters that could swing the election with 2-3%. Now, it's a lot more difficult for him because there are questions that are being asked about construction amnesties and AKP's own economic development model, which has always included foreign direct investments, low interest rates, mega projects and construction bonanza that creates a plastic image of economic growth, which is not really necessarily sustainable. 
And now the bill is already arrived for the end of that party. Investors are not there. Turkish economy is struggling. And the economic fallout from this earthquake will be massive. So how will he be able to reconstruct, provide, deliver the goods, patch up his again own political credentials? That's a very challenging thing ahead of him. More than ever before, I think he enters this election at his weakest he has been for the last 20 years. And yet he really doesn't want to lose it. Just to explain to us what a construction amnesty is, it sounds like a wonderful euphemism for something, if I've got you right, rather ugly, which is giving construction firms a pass for terrible buildings. Exactly. I mean, so the, the idea is that you apply for planning permission and pass building control, and then you build your building and they check it, right? That's what happens in any developed country. In, in Turkey, in, when an illegal construction has been done, you could, just like in the UK, apply retrospectively to get planning permission. But at certain moments, politically, political parties, Erdogan and the parties before him, have granted large amnesties to allow thousands of people who have built illegally, annexed, and perhaps in substandard conditions. Now they want to get basically a certificate or lawful abide and be able to sell their properties and, and legalize them. So the problem is, of course, with that, you have no idea whether or not they have adhered to earthquake requirements, which has been broadened by Erdogan's government himself. I mean, some of this destruction in the cities, you can clearly tell the difference. One building has collapsed next to it. There's another building that is firmly standing up. So something has gone wrong. But it's exactly the kind of thing that people are going to look at and point the finger. Charles, President Erdogan does not want to lose this election. He's been in power 20 years. Uh, it's the centenary of October 29th, so I would allow him to stand up there next to statues of Ataturk and say, look, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the second most important leader of Turkey ever. And he wants that moment, we're told. What's your sense of whether he might postpone the election? He's already been making it harder for some opponents to run against him. What do you think of the actual fairness or likelihood of this election? Well, I'm first of all, I'll say I'm not a Turkey specialist, but I, but I, it's unavoidable that, that that Turkey doesn't fall within my remit. So I would say humbly that I think all the signs have are pointing towards Erdogan doing almost anything within his power uh, to 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 sustain his status as marginally the favourite in the upcoming election. And I think you know, as a as a twenty four seven Syria analyst, I would say. Erdogan has remained, by and large, highly loyal to the, the cause of the opposition in Syria over the past 12 years. And frankly speaking, he and his government are the only last remaining meaningful partner that the Syrian opposition has. The fact that he took the steps that he had taken just prior to the earthquake to re-engage with the regime, I think, speaks to just how desperate he is to retain his hold on power in, in Turkey. It goes against everything he has stood for over the past 12 years. It is a literally 180 degree reversal of his highly principled position when it comes to Syria. But I also think, you know, if, if you were to ask me to sort of follow up on that, that most of it was optics. Uh, it's not really genuine. You know, I had the opportunity to meet with the Turkish foreign minister a few weeks ago before the earthquake, and I, I asked him directly, do you really think that this re-engagement with the regime is the right thing? Do you really think it serves Turkey's interests? And where is it really going? And he was pretty straight. He said, well, we, we don't have any other choice but to give this a go. There are no conditions on the table. There are no confidence building measures that we foresee having to, you know, having to develop no sequenced process through which this re-engagement process will, will continue. 
we're just we're just trying and seeing what we get back and to me that told me everything i needed to know which was that this wasn't genuinely a substantive effort this was a message to the turkish public that our competitors support re-engagement with the regime well we can play that game too but we also know that successfully and substantively re-engaging with the Assad regime is not a process that's going to take a few weeks, i.e. before the election. It's going to take much, much longer than that. So we'll play this game along, we'll string it along, we'll send the message to our voters and our prospective voters, and once the election's done, reality will kick in. Re-engagement isn't going to be a realistic prospect anytime soon, but we'll have played that game successfully. Thank you. And Lena, finally, what does it mean to the region if... Erdogan is re-elected. Well, certainly, you know, the the most concerned areas is like Syria and Iran when it comes to Erdogan's re-election. And, you know, as Charles put it rightly and Zia, I mean, he's going to play all his cards and do all his uh, effort to run this election again. You know, the question is, you know, how he's going to to play it on regional politics uh, level, especially when it comes to the Syrian opposition. As Charles rightly put it, you know, uh, this is an internal message for, for his opponent inside, sending a message to sit on the table with, with Bashar al-Assad. There were several meetings that happened on a security level, on a foreign minister level, you know, organized by Russians. Um, and, you know, they were planning for a meeting between Assad and, and Erdogan. But even if the meeting takes place, it doesn't mean that things were going to change overnight in terms of relation, in terms of the border crossing, in terms of the situation with the opposition. You know, the, the whole region also are concerned about, you know, Assad's relation with Iran. Well, it has huge ramifications, as you're saying, for the region, for Europe, whether Turkey begins to look more emphatically that way again or doesn't what it means for Turkey's freedoms within the country and for its relations with Russia. We haven't had time in this discussion to go into how much it has adroitly made of the fallout from the war in Ukraine, that that has been a considerable factor, something we're going to be watching very closely at Chatham House. But we're going to have to end there. This really incredibly sobering, sad set of events, horrendous stories coming out of the region and the very, very complicated politics. That's it from us. Big, big thank you to my guests, Lena, Charles, and Zia. A reminder that you can find all of our work, all of Chatham House's podcasts on major podcast providers and through our social media channels. So do like and follow and subscribe to us and do leave us a review. I always ask for a rather plentifully, I feel, but it, we really do look at them. To read more from our experts and to find more out about our events or to become a member, we'd love to have you. Don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can look at our recent works, our terrific Middle East and North Africa program, which has been looking at all the things that we have been just discussing. And also this week at the Institute, we talked to Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General of the US, and the full event and clips are available on YouTube and across our social media. But that's all for now. Goodbye. 